Hello, everyone. Today I'm going to be chatting with my wife, Claire Akebrand, about the poetry of Shezwa Miwosh. Plus, at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just for fun writing prompt that will hopefully help you learn a little bit how to sound a bit more like yourself. I'd like to start all of these recordings with a quote about writing or poetry, maybe inspirational, maybe provocative, maybe controversial. Today, obviously, the quote is going to be by Shazwell Mivosh himself. This is from one of his poems. I think the poem is called Dedication. It might be one of his most famous lines, certainly one of his most memorable and provocative. He says this, What is poetry which does not save nations or people? I want you to think about that and the aims you have for your art. Why are you writing poetry? Is it a pastime? Is it because it's fun? Or do you think that poetry should or can have effects on the world? Do you think that beauty should serve a purpose? And if so, do you think that purpose can be something as grand as saving a nation or a person? I could be persuaded on either side of this topic, I think. I've many days where I think that beauty should serve no purpose at all other than to be beautiful and that any writer who has goals or commitments that lie outside of poetry or outside of art uh, isn't really an artist anymore. On the other hand, I know that my favorite poetry continuously gives me reasons to live. And so it could be said in a real sense that it's true that poetry has saved me. Think about how good your poetry could be and how good it could be for the world. I think there might be no upper limit to how good it could be for the world and how could how good it could be in and of itself. I'm also going to begin each of these recordings maybe by inserting some class announcements. Uh, since this is the first and the semester just started, there, there aren't really any class announcements yet other than to just keep on track with the reading, pay attention to the schedule, and don't leave the reading to the last minute. Also, I should say that it's best to listen to these recordings after you've done the reading. It's never that fun to listen to a conversation between two people about a book or a poet that you've never read before. So you'll get a lot more out of these recordings if you've already done the reading. If you haven't, press pause, go do the reading, and then come back to these. For now, without further ado, let's go right into that conversation between me and Claire about the poetry of Shezwa Miwosh. Hello. Here I am with my wife, Claire Akebrand. Hello. Author of What Was Left of the Stars, a book of poems, and a novel called The Field is White. Available for purchase on Amazon. Yep. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by... Okay, so today we're discussing the poems of Shezwa Miwosh. I should say that none of these discussions are meant to be, by any means, comprehensive or thorough investigations of an author's oeuvre, right? I mean, they're not even really meant to be readings of an author or interpretations of an author. We're not really going to be doing much close reading. They're just appreciations. That's, I think, the word appreciations of an author and just talking about books that we love and trying to articulate why we love them. Yeah. So why do you love Shezwa Miwosh? He is unlike a lot of poets I like in the way that he breaks a lot of my own personal rules. Mm. Um, he doesn't, he writes about very odd subject matter sometimes, like Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. And I would never choose to do that. 
or would have never guessed that that could work, where I, in my own poetry and in other poetry I like, prefer to keep it more vague and timeless. And then what I also love about him is his um, philosophical ruminating style, mm. which also is unlike something I myself would try in poetry, because it seems like poetry should be more terse and, and tight, but his style is so open and meandering. Mm -hmm. Often feels like prose, looks like prose, but never feels like prose. Sometimes it is prose, but even if it's not prose, even if it's chopped up into lines, he'll say things in a poem like, this isn't poetry, which we'll get to. Hmm. That answer that you just gave really explains why the poem I'm about to read is so great, I think. If you, if someone were to ask me, what is your favorite Miwash poem, I would have a very hard time narrowing it down. I could maybe pick five that I really, really, really love, but I would rather pick 50 that I really, really love. Yeah. Inside of that five, which is definitely this poem, it's called Watering Can. And it does everything you described. First of all, it's a weird choice of topic, watering can. I'm going to write a poem about a watering can. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's not that weird. We have William Carlos Williams writing about a wheelbarrow, etc. But it is still somewhat counterintuitive, somewhat unexpected. He's constantly trying to invent new ways to write a poem and to prove that poems can be written about anything and can be made out of anything and can be found everywhere. Yeah, new ways of validating objects, seemingly uninteresting objects. That's a great way of saying it. New ways of validating objects, yeah, that we didn't think we cared about until he wrote about them. Mm -hmm. That was the first thing you said. The second thing you said was ruminations, philosophical ruminations that affirm. Yes. He's very good at that. Yeah. This is something that the rest of us probably can't imitate, but he's just so extremely wise. Yes. he And uh, he's wise enough to know that happy poetry is good. <laughs> you can write happy poetry. Yes. Yeah. He has experienced too much to write sarcastic, ironic poems. And that's that makes it the happiness in his poems even more earned, even more justified, even more authentic and believable because he lived through dictatorships and wars and exile. Exactly. He, of all people, has the right to be cynical and nihilistic and despairing. Mm -hmm. And yet poem after poem, when we'll talk about this also after I read this poem, mm -hmm. affirms affirms creation. Yeah, and in that way, his poetry is quite radical in its hopeful tone, right? Totally. And you also said that the form of his poems and the style of his poems is open. I don't know if you used the word meandering. You used yeah. the word open. Meandering. O open and meandering. So he's not, maybe in the early books he is, there's a few early s poem sequences in which you get the sense of compression and tightness and formal rigor. Mm -hmm. But usually it's a very open and meandering and unbounded style. Mm-hmm. So this is a prose poem called Watering Can, and it does everything that Claire, wonderfully, it, this poem does everything that Claire praised Miwosh for doing. Here it is, and, and it is probably in my top five Miwosh poems, Watering Can. Of a green color, standing in a shed, alongside rakes and spades, it comes alive when it is filled with water from the pond, and an abundant shower pours from its nozzle. In an act, we feel it of charity towards plants. It is not certain, however, that the watering can would have such a place in our memory, were it not for our training in noticing things. For, after all, we have been trained. Our painters do not often imitate the Dutch, who liked to paint still lifes, and yet photography contributes to our paying attention to detail, and the cinema taught us that objects, once they appear on the screen, 
would participate in the actions of the characters and therefore should be noticed. There are also museums where canvases glorify not only human figures and landscapes, but also a multitude of objects. The watering can has thus a good chance of occupying a sizable place in our imagination, and who knows, perhaps precisely in this, in our clinging to distinctly delineated shapes, does our hope reside of salvation from the turbulent waters of nothingness and chaos. Mm. Wow. What I am so in awe of in this poem is the distance between the catalyst for the poem, this object, the watering can, and where he ends the poem, which is in a kind of cosmic, stratospheric, universal affirmation of order against chaos. So he begins being as grounded as you possibly can be in a poem, and he ends, I think, achieving this kind of cosmic altitude, this kind of stratospheric reach has been achieved by the time we get to the end of this poem. How does he achieve so much distance in half a page of ink? You know, he, he starts with a watering can and ends with hope in the salvation against the turbulent waters of nothingness and chaos. It's remarkable. It is. And this this ending here is seems like it kind of comes out of nowhere, but it refers right back to the watering can, which itself mm. contains water. Yeah, and is an object of ordering the the chaos, the, the turbulent, the waters, of turbulent chaos. waters. So the poet himself becomes a watering can in a way. Yeah, becomes a, a mini kind of god ordering the chaos. Yeah, but all of this, but all of this still resides in the mundane. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I think this reminds me of Aristotle's injunction to poets that poets can achieve universal truths through noticing the particulars. He says the purpose, this is kind of a brutal paraphrase of Aristotle, but the purpose of poetry according to Aristotle is to encapsulate universals. And he compares this, he contrasts this with the job of the historian, which is to catalog particulars. But Aristotle does also say that the best way for a poet to encapsulate the universal is through particulars. And here Miwash is doing a great job. He knows that the goal of the poem should be I have to say something that is universally true. I have to make some kind of cosmic statement about the world that will always and forever be true and that will be true for all human beings ever, everywhere. And instead of only focusing on that cosmic scale, he grounds the poem in, in the most mundane of things. Mm -hmm. And something that's really interesting to me is that it, it reminds me of another poem I really love by Wallace Stevens, Anecdote of a Jar. If you haven't read that poem, you should look at it and compare it to this poem in a way. And they're very different, extremely different poems. The one is by Wallace Stevens is very metaphorical and imagistic, while this one seems to be the more spacious, more meandering version of it. Mm. And, um, mm -hmm. and I love both. I love both styles. Stylistically, they are different, but you're, you're right. They, they kind of are different versions of each other mm -hmm. where we you know both affirm in their own way the power of simple objects to reign in chaos uh -huh. and to establish order wherever you are yeah that's amazing miwosh of course would feel more of a need than most of us to establish order like i said having lived through dictatorships and tyrannies and exile and wars how is it that a poet that a person who could live such a life how is it that he isn't tainted into cynicism? Why are, why are his poems so affirmative? 
This is a biographical question about him, maybe, that we can't answer, but we can speculate. Um, he has a great love for landscapes and, and nature and human shapes and these, yeah. uh, um, what does he say here, distinctly delineated shapes. So, yeah. for example, the watering can. He clearly loves the world and what's all the concrete things about the world. Yeah. And his uh, focus on these things can only be um, through love. Yeah. He's so much love in his poems. That's a good word. So much love. Yes. I also think that his poems don't ignore the horrors right. of the 20th century. I think that's another reason why they feel earned and why his affirmations and happiness and joy mm-hmm. has so much authority behind it. I mean, I wasn't planning on reading this poem, but here's a poem that actually is kind of ironic. To say that he's a poem of happiness and affirmation doesn't mean that he isn't also a master of irony. This is a poem that is kind of ironic, and yet, so it signals to the horrors of the world, and it doesn't really do anything to pretend that they didn't exist. But also the irony in this poem doesn't seem like a sneering kind of irony, but rather one of those sad smirks. Yeah, it's a very sad kind of irony, that's right. It's called This World. It appears that it was all a misunderstanding. What was only a trial run was taken seriously. The rivers will return to their beginnings. The wind will cease in its turning about. Trees, instead of budding, will tend to their roots. Old men will chase a ball, a glance in the mirror. They are children again. The dead will wake up, not comprehending, till everything that happened has unhappened. What a relief. Breathe freely, you who suffered much. It's a kind of prayer, right? It's a kind of wish that this could all be undone, you know? Yeah. So it's not a cynical kind of irony. It's a kind of prayer that you might make if you were a child. What if this could all be undone, you know, knowing mm-hmm. full well that it can't? Mm-hmm. And it really addresses the absurdity of existence. It can only be a kind of joke. Yeah. Yeah. So his poems are have earned happiness because he knows how easy and how rational it would be to describe existence as a cruel joke. Mm-hmm. There's great reason. I'm, by reason, I mean rationality. That, that that argument that life is a cruel joke has so much compelling evidence behind it. Exactly. And he, of all people, knows all of that compelling evidence and yet isn't persuaded, still affirms a belief in God, in the sacredness of humans, and in the beauty of creation. Mm-hmm. I have this pet theory that all great poetry is affirmative, yeah. By which I mean it affirms life. It affirms life as something worth living. It affirms life as ultimately good and beautiful. No matter how dark the poem may seem on the surface, you could think of, you know, for example, The Wasteland, or although he's not primarily a poet, anything by Samuel Beckett. You know, the darkest texts of the 20th century, if they're great and if they're masterpieces, always have something affirmative about them. I'm sure that that's true. I agree completely. It feels, every poem feels every good poem, feels optimistic, like deeply optimistic, because just the act of writing it and putting it out there in the world is such a um, act of, of faith and hope. Yeah. That a hope that someone will share with you um, your experiences or someone will partake of the experience of the poem or yeah. it would be a kind of communion of sorts. I think what you say about his love of distinctly delineated shapes is right on. For example, look at what he calls a poem. This is this counts for him as a poem. This is prose, I guess, but it's about one line and a bit, and it's called From My Dentist's Window. 
Extraordinary. A house. Tall. Surrounded by air. It stands. In the middle of a blue sky. That's it. Yeah. And what I love about this is, well, there's so much to love about this. First of all, that there's no commentary. There's no explanation about why this is extraordinary. Second of all, I love how staccato and punctuated all these tiny sentences are. Extraordinary, period. A house, period. Tall, period. Surrounded by air, period. It stands, period. In the middle of a blue sky, as if simply seeing this thing makes him lose his breath. Mm-hmm. With kind of awe. He's stunned by this into a kind of speechlessness. Mm-hmm. And it's nothing extraordinary. It's just a house surrounded by sky. It's the kind of thing you see every day. The purpose of this poem is to remind you, look, this is extraordinary. This mundane thing, this distinctly delineated shape is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And I love the title, too. <laughs> because, well... Yeah, no, there's something so slightly... suggestive. He, I mean, when you think of the dentist, you think of waiting for long, long periods of time. You think of pain, even. You think of suffering. You think of decay. You think of so many, so many negative things, right? Pain, yeah. Right. But um, for me, poetry is so much like meditation. Not that I want to reduce it just to that, but it has a lot of similarities to meditation in the way that there's a focus on specific details, specific concrete details in the now mm-hmm. that that ground you, ideally, in the present moment. Mm-hmm. And um, if you've ever tried meditation, it has a way of making you notice things you've never seen before that you might have looked at with your eyes, but you've never actually seen them. Yeah. And I absolutely love how he seems to have that eerie and wonderful moment where he sees something for the first time. Yeah. Maybe he's been there before and this at this dentist, and he's probably maybe even spent long periods of time looking at this house. Mm-hmm. So I love how this poem describes that very weird moment when you realize that you're seeing something you've seen many times before for the first time. And like he says in Watering Can, that's the point of art, right? These Dutch painters, photography, the cinema, all the purpose of all of these media is to teach us how to glorify objects. Mm -hmm. That's what he says. There are also museums where canvases glorify not only human figures and landscapes, but also a multitude of objects. Yes. The purpose of art is to glorify objects. There's this wonderful line in an early poem. I probably won't be able to find it now. The poem is called Dedication. And he makes this very provocative claim. What is poetry which does not save nations or people? And then he answers this question. A connivance with official lies. A song of drunkards whose throat will be cut in a moment. So poetry that does not save nations and peoples is complicit in tyranny, is the claim this poem makes. What do you think about that? Do you think it's the job of poetry to save nations or peoples? I do think so, but not in the same way as other things. Poetry would save people and nations through keeping them aware and alive emotionally. Mm -hmm. And um, people who have life-affirming experiences Mm. are going to be happier, more productive people, kinder, and more sensitive. And they're going to want to perpetuate and sustain life. Right. I mean, hopefully. I don't think that poetry, maybe once or twice in history it's happened that a poem has some kind of direct 
and immediate and cataclysmic effect on a democracy or on a nation, you know, can change the course of history. But I really don't think so. I don't think poems are meant to have that kind of immediate social effect. Right. Otherwise, they do become a kind of propaganda, like like yeah. what he accuses them of being. That could be the line that distinguishes art from propaganda, that propaganda has a blatant purpose mm-hmm. to affect social change. It could be social change you like, it could be social change you don't like. Mm-hmm. The purpose of this is to affect social change. Of lesser priority is its beauty, its truth, you know? I just was listening to something, a reading a something. Maybe it was David Foster Wallace. Yeah, I think it was David Foster Wallace talking about the difference between advertising and art. And I think that's relevant here, the difference between art and propaganda. David Foster Wallace says that no, there are many advertisements that are beautiful, mm-hmm. persuasive, extremely intelligent and well-made. But his claim is that they can never, ever, ever rise to the level of art. Mm-hmm. because they don't come to you as a free gift. They want something from you. Yes, That's yeah. the language he uses to describe advertising. Right. Advertising doesn't come to you as a free gift. It wants something from you. Like the customer service smile. Exactly. And I think that's the same with propaganda. Propaganda always wants something from you, mm-hmm. whereas art comes to you as a free gift. And therefore also makes you aware of your own freedom. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it says, encounter me however you want. You have the freedom to encounter me and to enjoy me and to experience me however you want. I'm not asking you to buy something. I'm not asking you to believe something. I'm not asking you to vote for anyone. I'm not asking you to have certain opinions. Mm -hmm. So poetry can save nations and peoples in very indirect and yet extremely important and profound and crucial ways, I think. I mean, can it save individuals? I think all the time. I mean, I, yeah, I think it, Shezwa Miwosh is high on my list of reasons to live on this earth, you know? So there are poets or novels or movies or songs that make me glad to be here. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't have, if that list was suddenly erased, if I didn't have any of them, yeah, I don't know. Would I want to still be here? Right. In a book called The Witness of Poetry, Shezwa Miwosh argues that true poetry is, quote, the passionate pursuit of the real. What do you think that means? The passionate pursuit of the real. I think it probably relates to what I was saying earlier about the here and now, the present. I mean, the present really is the only thing that is real. The past is mm-hmm. gone, and in our memory, the future is, isn't real. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it, is a, it should be grounded in the here and now. For example, what I see when I look out my dentist's window, that's worthy of being a poem. That reality is worthy of being a poem. Mm-hmm. But you were telling me something earlier about how his early poems did something maybe paradoxically in opposition to that. Yeah, I listened to an interview with him where he said that during World War II, he was writing poems that were very, or what he, he said he wanted to write poems that were unlike his stark reality. And so he wrote poems similar to Blake's Songs of Innocence. He wanted to write things that were as the world should be and not as it was for him at the time. Is that a betrayal of this other precept that he that he has about poetry being a pursuit of the real? Do you think these two things can coexist? Um, is it, or is it a kind of, are, are songs of innocence and songs of the ideal and songs of how the world should be, are they... I don't know how I would answer these questions. I mean, we can't forget that Blake's songs of innocence are always paired with songs of experience, right? So right. songs of the ideal do become naive if they're not 
paired with or tinged with the real. I'm sure there's a way to do it where you were describing, for example, I mean, you could describe nature and landscapes forever, even in a time of war, in a way that's real and yeah. without lying about yeah. the state of things. Here's a poem. I wasn't planning on reading this poem either, and I won't read all of it because it's kind of long, but I love this as an example of pursuit of the real because he exposes the real Miwosh. I mean, I think all of this could be a kind of artificial real. You know, it could be a constructed persona. Um, but I think either way, the effect is the same. I don't really care. He reveals some things about himself that I would be too afraid to reveal, and yet I that resonate with me, that I have felt before, that I get. So it's called Report. O Most High. So it's kind of a, a psalm or a prayer, yeah? O Most High, you willed to create me a poet, and now it is time for me to present a report. My heart is full of gratitude, though I got acquainted with the miseries of that profession. By practicing it, we learn too much about the bizarre nature of man, who every hour, every day, and every year is possessed by self-delusion. A self-delusion when building sandcastles, collecting postage stamps, admiring oneself in a mirror, assigning oneself first place in sport, power, love, and the getting of money. All the while on the very border, on the fragile border beyond which there is a province of mumblings and wails. For in every one of us a mad rabbit thrashes and a wolf pack howls, so that we are afraid it will be heard by others. Out of self-delusion comes poetry, and poetry confesses to its flaw. Though only by remembering poems once written is their author able to see the whole shame of it. And yet he cannot bear another poet nearby if he suspects him of being better than himself and envies him every scrap of praise, ready not only to kill him, but smash him and obliterate him from the surface of the earth, etc., <laughs> etc. Et so here, he, here he's praying to God, giving a report of this stewardship. It's a kind of parable of the talents. You gave me this gift. I'm reporting back. What have I done with it? Well, let me confess. I have these horrible urges and these horrible petty jealousies and envies, you know? So that's a kind of pursuit of the real. This is real. What it means to be a human, really, is to be subject to these extremely base tendencies. Hmm. And I think poetry as a pursuit of the real means that we shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't airbrush those out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I admire him. I'm in awe of his willingness to be vulnerable like that. Right. And to tell the truth. Yeah, that's another way in which he's he comes off as extremely wise in a way that, um, you know, doesn't look like showing off. Well, that's, yeah, maybe we could talk for one more minute about this wisdom, because he one does immediately get the impression reading him that he is immensely wise. Mm-hmm. But... If we drill down on this, it could be nothing more than the fact that it's not wisdom per se. I mean, it is. Self-awareness, maybe. Yeah, or the willingness to tell the truth. Like, there's nothing in this poem that I just read that is wiser than what I already know. I already knew this about me and about human nature in general. Mm -hmm. The difference between me and him is, I mean, one of many probably, maybe the crucial one here, is that he's willing to just say it. He's willing to tell the truth. Mm Mm-hmm. And I might not be willing to say this about me. Mm-hmm. So wisdom, in many, many, many cases, could be nothing more than a willing, willingness to tell the truth. A desire to not be complicit in official lies, like he said in that earlier poem. Mm-hmm. So if you're taking notes about how to write a poem, tell the truth. to Not just to others, but yourself too. 
I think first to yourself. I think that's a great point. I mean, you have to be your own first and most important audience, right? Tell the truth to yourself. I mean, yeah, I wouldn't want to see that about myself that I'm jealous of other writers. I know. In this poem, he is his only audience. He's talking to God, but it's a kind of like looking in the mirror, reporting on himself. Mm -hmm. So he is his own audience, right? And he's telling the truth about himself. Mm -hmm. So tell the truth about yourself and your poems will become better. Yeah. Yeah. Look at um, yourself the way you also look at objects with the same. That's great. Yeah. The same sort of um, objectivity. Yeah. How is this object shaped? Mm -hmm. What does it look like? There's a poem we both really love called Ars Poetica. It might be, if someone put a gun to my head and said, you must tell me your favorite Chez Mibosh poem right now, I guess this is the one I would blurt out. Not that it's better than others, but I don't know. It's just it's a real favorite of mine. So I'll read it, and then we'll talk about why I think it's so good. One thing that's important about this poem is that the title has a question mark after it. So I guess the title isn't Ars Poetica, but Ars Poetica? <laughs> and this is the phrase, right, from Horace simply means the art of poetry. So it's a poem in which a poet contemplates his or her art or tries to describe his or her art, what it does, how it's made, what it's for. So this is Ars Poetica by Chezwamiwosh. I have always aspired to a more spacious form that would be free from the claims of poetry or prose and would let us understand each other without exposing the author or reader to sublime agonies. In the very essence of poetry, there is something indecent. A thing is brought forth which we didn't know we had in us, so we blink our eyes as if a tiger had sprung out and stood in the light, lashing his tail. That's why poetry is rightly said to be dictated by a demonian, though it's an exaggeration to maintain that he must be an angel. It's hard to guess where that pride of poets comes from when so often they're put to shame by the disclosure of their frailty. What reasonable man would like to be a city of demons who behave as if they were at home, speak in many tongues, and who, not satisfied with stealing his lips or hand, work at changing his destiny for their convenience? It's true that what is morbid is highly valued today, and so you may think that I am only joking, or that I have devised just one more means of praising art with the help of irony. There was a time when only wise books were read, helping us to bear our pain and misery. This, after all, is not quite the same as leafing through a thousand works fresh from psychiatric clinics. And yet the world is different from what it seems to be, and we are other than how we see ourselves in our ravings. People, therefore, preserve silent integrity, thus earning the respect of their relatives and neighbors. The purpose of poetry is to remind us how difficult it is to remain just one person, For our house is open, there are no keys in the doors, and invisible guests come in and out at will. What I'm saying here is not, I agree, poetry, as poems should be written rarely and reluctantly under unbearable duress, and only with the hope that good spirits, not evil ones, choose us for their instrument. So what's so good about this poem? I mean, I could go on and on. Every stanza... I adore, has something in it that I just totally adore. What do you like about this poem? Well, it's completely unforgettable. I mean, every time, I swear, every time I write a poem, I think about that poetry should be um, written rarely and reluctantly and under unbearable duress. Do you think that's true? Well... I'm conflicted on this myself. Do you think that's true? In some ways. I mean, 
I think I think you should write ideally every day and be open to you know make set up opportunities for good ideas to come to you. Yeah. Even when you don't feel especially excited about it or inspired in any way. Yeah. So I do believe in working when you feel absolutely uninspired, but but it's not like everything you write is would then be called poetry. Right. It's more like practice. Yeah. So real poetry then the actually the good stuff that you do write then does come through duress, right? And happens Hard work. Ra- and happens rarely. Yeah. I mean, if you have a writing practice in which you get up and write for two hours every single day, that's not rare. Right. But it might be rare that a true poem comes out of that writing practice. How many true poems per year will you write? Exactly. I mean, they, they will happen rarely, but they wouldn't happen if you didn't have that writing practice exactly. set up. And the unbearable duress, I really love that. I, To me, personally, I feel like it means make yourself unbearably available for sensory experiences not just sensory but just for experience and that's the work that leads to poetry what do you think about this reluctantly though that why does he add that that we should be hesitant to write poems or we shouldn't really want to or i don't know how do you interpret that word the way i interpret that is don't write it in a hipster way (laughs) okay say more about that don't write it with the sort of attitude like, oh, I'm so cool. I'm writing poems. Yeah, look at me being artful and And here's unique. a picture of a line I wrote on Instagram. Not saying that's always wrong, you know, posting lines on Instagram, but, I have to go but s- don't do it for, for a trend or for some unimportant or frivolous reasons you know it's like don't go pray on street corners you don't want you don't don't go to don't take your typewriter to starbucks so that people can see you being a poet right like take it seriously if you do that then your motives aren't to write art they're to be seen and thought of as cool exactly and also i think reluctantly is such a great word because it could mean so many different things i also yeah. think it could imply a sense that like this is to write a true poem is extremely hard right. and you should go into it knowing that you should go into it knowing that you'll mostly fail. Exactly. Like, don't be too eager about it as if it was like some enjoyable, casual... Pastime. Pastime, exactly. Don't do it as a hobby. Yeah. That's what it is. It's too important. Yes. How great is this? The purpose of poetry is to remind us how difficult it is to remain just one person. Oh my gosh, that is so amazing. That's... Why, why is it hard to remain just one person? I've done it my whole life. It's pretty easy, actually. (laughs) I love it. I mean, one reason I love it is because it's not. The purpose of poetry is, yeah, to convince you to believe in certain things or to correct social wrongs. That's not the purpose of poetry. Right. Like, if when I read amazing poems, that's what I feel. It's impossible to remain just one person because I'm also this person and this person from this other poem and... All the people and my favorite novels. And in addition to all of that, all these little demons that he describes in us, like wanting this and believing that, and another demon wanting the opposite and believing in the opposite, right? He says that inside of us, invisible guests come in and out at will. Mm-hmm. You've had the experience, I'm sure, of being persuaded by something, and then you hear the counter-argument, and you're persuaded by that too. So right. it's it actually is quite difficult to feel like you have a unified, coherent center Right. And why is it important? He says the purpose of poetry is to remind us that this is difficult. Mm. This is so counterintuitive. Why is it important that we remember 
how uncentered we can sometimes be. I don't know. Maybe one reason is because you, I mean, who, who is more annoying than a person who thinks they know the answer and who cannot be persuaded otherwise mm-hmm. and who is closed to counter arguments yeah. or alternative ways of thinking and seeing the world? No, I'm finished. I'm, my development as a person is finished. Mm-hmm. How great is this? There was a time when only wise books were read, helping us to bear our pain and misery. This, after all, is not quite the same as leafing through a thousand works fresh from the psychiatric clinics. <laughs> so there's a kind of non-so-subtle dig to a whole realm of poetry, the realm of poetry that is seen as a kind of therapy or confession, mm. you know, and that the best poetry is the rawest poetry. Right, like some kind of competition on who has the most mental illness. <laughs> yeah, or who has <laughs> suffered the most pain. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, or who, who's, yeah. who's had the hardest life. So how to write if you're keeping the list. According to Shezwa Miwosh, write a book that can help other people bear their pain and misery. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I also think you could be making a shadow list here. How to read, how and what to read. Don't, life is too short. You don't have time to read all the books in the world. Don't read any books that aren't wise and that don't help you bear your pain and misery. And... Yeah, don't read books that were written too eagerly and not with enough reluctance. Totally. Not with enough reluctance. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Right, because going back to that word reluctantly, if you're too eager to talk... That's um, a bad sign for a poet. Right, and for any writer. Like, you don't want to just assume that anything you'll say is going to be brilliant or that people will want to hear it. It's a strange thing to say considering his collected poems is like 700 pages long. (laughs) But he lived 90 years, so 700 pages to me seems like an immensely restrained distillation. Especially considering his style. Especially considering his open style, which he talks about in the first stanza of this poem. I have always aspired to a more spacious form that would be free from the claims of poetry or prose and would let us understand each other. How great is that? Mm. I love that so much. It's almost Whitman-esque in its immediacy. Yeah, like let's not play too many tricks let's just say things as they are yeah so we can understand each other like that's my goal here reader i feel him saying my goal reader is to understand you and to have you understand me Mm. and like you that's exactly right what you say no we don't have time for tricks this is what we have to tell each other is too important for tricks Mm -hmm. it's too important for posturing it's too important for pretense or posing and wallowing in your miseries. That's right. It's a, he says it's true that what is morbid is highly valued today. Mm-hmm. And that, that, I mean, that was true 50 years ago when he wrote this poem. Mm. It's equally true now, right? Cynicism, irony, despair, nihilism, all that stuff is kind of faddish and can get a certain attention, but is of much, much lesser importance, if not outright dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. Let's actually commune. Let's reach across time and space and realize that we can commune with each other. Mm-hmm. And the best way to do that is to dispense with all of the useless poetic facades, mm-hmm. you know, that can get too flashy and that call attention to, oh, look at how smart I am. Yeah. Why does he say in the very essence of poetry there is something indecent? A thing is brought forth which we didn't know we had in us. 
that is also so gorgeous and something that is extremely true for me when I read a poem that I really love. I feel like something has been brought forth in me that I didn't know I had. I mean, it's like uh, Robert Frost says, poetry is uh, something about a thing being a thing we knew but didn't know oh, we yeah. knew. Yeah, I think that's Frost. Yeah, I think it is. Poetry is so amazing um, compared to, for example, painting or other art forms because it, it has a way of articulating the most obscure, abstract feelings within us that we didn't even know we had. Yeah. So, um, it, so in a way it is, I mean, I think it's kind of um, possibly a little bit of a joke to when he says indecent, because it seems so intimate. It, it's almost yeah. as if he's showing you <laughs> a picture of your of yourself unclothed. <laughs> yeah, no, really. I mean, I love it too because he's he's nervous that he's committing the same sin that he's accusing these other people fresh from the psychiatric clinics clinics of of committing. Like, I know that a poem has to expose its author. It has to contain its author's emotion. Yeah. And I'm nervous that I'm doing it in a way that is indecent. Like, hey, everyone, look at me naked. You know, there's a way to do that that is nothing but posturing and narcissism and morbid navel gazing. But there's a way to do that that is necessary to a great poem. Oh, yeah. You know, we've talked about the, the importance of telling the truth. So where is the line? At what point does it become just showing off your suffering and being self-deprecating in a flattering way. <laughs> well, so I don't, that's a hard question and I would have to think long and hard to give anything close to a good answer, but self-deprecation is important. I mean, that poem Ars Poetica is full of it. Like I know that what I'm doing here is partly indecent. So he's acknowledging, look, I get it. There's reasons for you to dislike what I'm doing right now. Well, yeah, it is. It is important, but I feel like a lot of writers, including myself, will use it sometimes to make myself look better. Do you know what I mean? Well, I think every virtue can become a vice. I think that's totally true. I don't know how I would answer your question, Claire. It's very hard, and I think I'd have to answer on a poem-by-poem basis. Yeah. Some poems, there might be a hundred ways to pull it off well, but they'd all be different ways. Mm-hmm. Be self-deprecating. I think motives... I, th- I when I read Miwosh, I don't get the sense that he wants. It's very hard. I get the sense that he is sincere. I know, and that could be faked. I grant that it could be a total successful a successful ruse. Like I'm just writing the words that will make my reader think I'm being sincere. Yeah, but, but that requires a certain amount of wisdom too. <laughs> I think that's absolutely right. That requires a- enough knowledge about what an urgent reluctant utterance feels like like this this utterance that composes this poem the utterances contained in this poem was too urgent i wanted to to stifle it because i know that poetry is indecent but it was too urgent Mm -hmm. i have to just say it right Mm -hmm. i think the devil is in the details the answer to your question is the devil is in the details and it all it, it can depend on a word the placement of a word does the author pull it off well the how does she manage punctuation you know if she's just if the author is just slightly off with punctuation then it'll all backfire and she'll fail but if she does something slightly different with like a comma or one word an adverb 
then she'll win. I mean, that's why we do workshops, I think, to like really hone in on specific moments. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe the best answer to that question and the thing I should have said first and then shut up is read. Like you learn where that line is and how to stay on the good side of it by reading. Reading only good. Reading only books <laughs> that are wise and that can help you bear your pain and your misery. Yeah. Don't settle for anything that isn't a masterpiece. You're, you don't have nine lives. So read only the best books. Okay, you, you really like this blacksmith shop poem. We've droned on and on here. I'm going to quickly read it, and then you can end this chat by telling everyone why you love it so much. Okay. Blacksmith shop. I liked the bellows operated by rope. A hand or foot pedal. I don't remember which, but that blowing and the blazing of the fire and a piece of iron in the fire held there by tongs, red, softened for the anvil, beaten with a hammer, bent into a horseshoe, thrown into a bucket of water, sizzle, steam, and horses hitched to be shod, tossing their manes, and in the grass by the river plowshares, sledge runners, harrows waiting for repair, at the entrance, my bare feet on the dirt floor, here gusts of heat, at my back, white clouds. I stare and stare. It seems I was called for this, to glorify things just because they are. It really makes you want to cry almost. It's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, <laughs> it's hard to know what to say about this. Well, that's the thing. I think great poetry is self-evidently great. I really do. I don't really think this requires our commentary, but add add an enthusiastic swoon or two. Yeah. Uh, um, it, when he says, my bare feet on the dirt floor, it definitely seems like a child watching, right? A child mm. possibly seeing grown-ups. Yeah, I'd never thought of that, but you're probably right. Yeah. My bare feet. Um so I, I'm picturing a child here seeing this beautiful scene take place, which is an ordinary scene, but even if you're used to it, it's still quite quite yeah. an extraordinary thing Yeah. to see um, something, materials changed in such a dramatic way right before your eyes, and just for something as ordinary as a horseshoe. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like alchemy or something. It's sort of a... Yeah, it almost is. It feels like a poem about magic. <laughs> It almost is. Right. And so the poem is kind of different than some of his other poems. It is very um, concrete. I mean, he does use a lot of concrete images generally, but... But he can also have a whole poem of just abstraction. Exactly. Just meditation, yeah, for right. sure. So here you have all these gorgeous images, and he's standing there as a child, possibly the birth of a poet, right? <laughs> That's oh, what it yeah, feels I like. like. That a lot. I'd never thought of that, but I like that a lot. It's like I stare and stare. It seems I was called for this. I mean, I've had moments like this as a child where I thought it seems that I was meant to stand here and see that. It feels that important. I, I have some distinct memories as a kid of seeing a particular sky and having this exact feeling. I think like the world deserves to be witnessed. Right. And then this beautiful ending to glorify things just because they are. It goes back to that thing I said about poetry should ground you in the present. And, I mean, the present is the most beautiful thing. <laughs> it's glorious. 
It's glorious. And anything that's part of that present is glorious. Yeah. This moment right here that we're living right now is glorious. And the moment that you're listening to this, wherever you are, doing whatever you're doing, is a glorious thing. Mm -hmm. Just because it is. Just because it exists. Oh, I feel like I, well, nothing I just said does any of that poem justice. That, well, but, I mean, the poem speaks for itself. Its grandeur speaks for itself. But no, I love what you said about this poem. I totally love it. This, I mean, fire and like the fog or the white, the white clouds here, gusts of heat at my back. I mean, it just, doesn't it seem like almost he is yeah. in the fire being created right then and there? like the magician's apprentice mickey mouse in the workshop like <laughs> yeah. seeing oh wow i mean we come full circle in a way like here we are back with the elemental things from the watering can poem hmm. water steam yeah. forming shapes you know forming forming order out of chaos you know right. so he, and here he is, is looking at the scene thinking oh this is what i'm meant to do like this is what humans are for and this is what poets do and it's, yeah, I love it, your emphasis on him being called as a young child mm -hmm. to witness this and to maybe replicate it one day. Like maybe when I grow up, I too will form order out of chaos mm -hmm. and celebrate the glory of creation. I mean, there's something about a blacksmith, yeah, changing shapes, changing material, like you say, in such a fundamental way that's like, godlike you know oh yeah and really godlike you know thor comes to mind or something i don't know odin and thor right and i didn't really think of it before but it's a lot like the tiger poem too no well you mean blake's tiger poem yeah. right yeah blake's tiger poem yeah that's great yeah. well thanks the end <laughs> I'd like to end these recordings with a writing prompt. These writing prompts aren't really connected to the class, although they're obviously inspired by the readings, but they're not mandatory. They're not required. They're not the same as the prompts that I've written in the syllabus, although they could hopefully feed into each other. Doing these writing prompts might help you get a head start on the assignments for the class. One thing I find so remarkable about Miwosh's poetry is, and I can't think of any other word for it, how sincere it is. I'm nervous about using this word because sincerity is a troublesome thing in art and in poetry in particular. Oscar Wilde famously said that all bad poetry is sincere. And I, I agree with that. I know what he means. He means trite or sentimental or poetry that tries too hard to be profound, poetry that takes itself too seriously. But I also think that a version of the opposite is true. It's true to say that all great poetry is sincere in some way. Even if it's ironic, it has to take its irony sincerely, if that makes sense. So sincerity, I think, is still a kind of mandatory ingredient for any masterpiece in poetry, although it is indeed a two-edged sword and, and can horribly backfire. But when I read Miwosh, I get the impression that he's always saying what he means. There's no posturing. There's no pretense. There's no pretending, and this is what I mean by sincerity. He's saying what he thinks and believes, and in fact doesn't even really care if it's poetry or not. He even confirms this in one of my favorite poems by him called Ars Poetica. In the last stanza he writes, 
What I'm saying here is not, I agree, poetry, as poems should be written rarely and reluctantly, under unbearable duress and only with the hope that good spirits, not evil ones, choose us for their instrument. I fully admit that the trope of sincerity could be just that, a trope. It could be artificially constructed sincerity, right? I grant that, but I don't really care. Either way, it has the the intended effect, which is to say, he convinces me that what he's saying is considered and heartfelt and that he actually means what he says. So for this writing prompt, you need to do two things. First, pick a real addressee. I think this can help us break out of the temptation to posture or to be pretty or to be poetic when we write poetry. Instead, I want you to picture someone that you know, someone that you love, someone very close to you, a spouse, a child, a parent, a sibling. What you're going to be writing for this writing prompt is for them. It's designed for them to read. The next thing that you need to do is pick a big topic, something like death or faith or God or art or pain or joy or doubt. And then without writing a poem, without writing anything like poetry, I want you to just spend five or 10 minutes writing down sentences about this topic that you want to deliver to this person. Try to examine yourself and determine your own deeply held inner, true, sincere beliefs about this topic. So this writing prompt might involve a lot of not writing, a lot of silent reflection. What do you actually believe about joy or death or doubt or faith? Think about it. Think hard about it. And then try to put those sincere beliefs into sentences. If those sentences sound cliche or trite, which they probably will, don't worry. You can fix that later. The goal here is simply to practice saying what you mean in a poem and set and putting into a poem something that is meaningful something that is sincere, something that you can actually, a statement, a truth statement, that you can actually stand by. And of course, I can't let these recordings pass without reading a poem. So there'll be a kind of poem of the day or poem of the episode or poem of the class. Today's, of course, is by Shezwa Miwosh, and it's called Encounter. We were riding through frozen fields in a wagon at dawn. A red wing rose in the darkness. And suddenly a hare ran across the road. One of us pointed to it with his hand. That was long ago. Today neither of them is alive, not the hare nor the man who made the gesture. Oh, my love, where are they? Where are they going? The flash of a hand, streak of a movement, rustle of pebbles. I ask not out of sorrow, but in wonder. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's uh, recording and the chat between me and Claire about Miwosh's poems. Stay tuned for the next recording, which will be about the poetry of another Polish writer, Zbigniew Herbert. I'm not sure who that chat will be with, perhaps one of you. But in the meantime, keep reading. Keep just reading for pleasure. Keep enjoying the readings. Keep writing, of course. And don't forget that you also have what it takes to become a great poet. Mm-hmm.